This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Elisha Cooper spends his mornings creating children's books and his afternoons playing with his two daughters. But when he discovers a lump in five-year-old Zoe's midsection as she sits in his lap in a Chicago Cubs game, everything changes. Surgery, sleepless nights, months of treatment, a drumbeat of worry. Even as the family moves to New York and Zoe starts kindergarten, they must navigate a new normal. School and soccer and hot chocolate at the local cafe interrupted by anxious visits to the hospital. Elisha and his wife strive to help their daughter maintain a sense of stability and joy in their family life, and he tries to understand this new world, how it changes art and language and laughter as he holds on to the protective love he feels for his child. As a dad, Elisha is forced to balance his desires to be a protective parent even as he encourages his girls to take risks, against the increasing helplessness he feels for his child's well-being and his own. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Elisha Cooper about what it took for him and his wife to preserve a sense of normalcy and joy in their daughter's lives and how the family emerged from this experience profoundly changed but healed as a whole. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient. A matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy? Or just use it up and throw it away, too. I, I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Elisha Cooper, who's the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. Elisha, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want you just to briefly set the stage here for us about what we're going to be talking about. The, the, the short version is that you found a, a lump in your daughter's abdomen, and it went from yeah. there to a whole bunch of really scary stuff. But tell us the, the story of how that happened. Yeah, the, the short story is that I was taking my daughter Zoe to a baseball game at uh, Wrigley Field to a Cubs game. She loved the Cubs, and she's five, and she sat on my lap so she could see better, and I just kind of felt this odd lump in her side. 
And yeah, it was kind of the start of everything changing because then, you know, we, we thought nothing of it for a couple of days, but we went to a doctor and then a, you know, got scans and yeah, it was a tumor. And so very quickly we were thrown into kind of cancer world where we were had surgery and, or we, she did have surgery and, uh, uh, radiation and chemotherapy and it kind of turned everything upside down so you know like i gotta say as i was reading the book <clears throat> it got really difficult at certain parts because i have a daughter named zoe also oh complete goodness. complete with the same uh two dots over the e uh, right. which, which is, means life though zoe means life it does it does and her her uh, hebrew name is is life also but we had a, a medical issue with her, and it, it was, in, in a way, parallel in that I saw she had a, a neurological thing developing in one of her legs, and I saw it, and then I didn't see it, and then I thought I saw it again, but I didn't see it, and, and there was, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, is there a little bit of denial there? I mean, did you kind of, if you, if you think back to your mindset, did you think immediately, oh my God, this is a bad thing? Or did you not just sort all. of get not it out at of all? Not at all. We're like, oh, this is funny. What's this extra rib? Yeah. No. And I think that one of the things that I'm very aware of in talking about this book now is that um, these feelings, or that even the thing that I went through, is kind of what all parents go through in that those little moments of worry, and they're all linked. And this one happened to be worse. Right. But it's like that kind of that little pit in the stomach moment is a universal thing to parenting. And I'd actually even argue to just being human. Right. We 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 feel worried for the people we love. But initially, yeah, there's a there is denial. And then and then everything gets kind of very serious very fast. You, know, you didn't talk a lot about her reactions to this whole thing. It's I mean, obviously, it's, it's written by you. It's much more of a first person thing. But. Uh, at one point, you said she didn't. Cr she doesn't cry. How did she yeah. handle getting all the poking and prodding and the tests and the needles and the the being in the CT scanners and uh, you right? Know, it's just it's a lot well, of stuff to throw at a five year old. Oh my goodness! Yeah, but you know what's crazy is that Zoe is, and I, I I don't mean to. Well, I'm I'm actually happy giving away the ending of the book. You know, she's going to high school next year. She's wonderful. She's strong, and she's still crazy strong. She just she just came in third in new york in the eighth grade mile she's just like this wow star you know and i just i mean i'm i think as you've read the book you can tell i'm i love her and i'm smitten with her but she is a strong kid and she was kind of strong then you know so she just kind of kind of a little stoic she would just kind of go through it and go into the ct machine and just line or lie there perfectly and get poked by needles, and she never cried. She just was kind of tough. And I think actually a lot of little kids were that way, and the ones who I felt much more kind of, I mean, I felt empathy towards everybody, but I felt like a particular empathy towards the teenagers because at the clinic, at the hospital, because they knew what was going on, whereas the little kids, the five-year-olds, were able to just kind of sometimes trot along, whereas the parents were you know, the ones where they were kind of suffering because we knew what was up, right? We knew what right, was going on. Right. But it was the, the four-year-olds, the three-year-olds, they just were kind of bouncing along with attached to their IVs. I was always <laughs> impressed by, by yeah. the resiliency of these 
little kids. And again, it was the older kids that kind of fault in our stars, teenager things who you just really felt for because they, they, oh, they, they understood in a way that Zoe never really did. You know, I mean, later on, as she started getting more scans, she kind of understood and we would share things with her. But yeah. early on, she, she was just turned five. So we told her everything, but it wasn't. But at a, at a five or six year old level, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of you know as kind of putting myself in your shoes. Obviously, as I'm reading this, could because of the Zoe and because of the medical stuff. And I remember, you know, d- there were certain parts of of the thing where she got she got really scared at at various things. And there was one test yeah. in particular. She had to have this uh, electronic impulse test, which involved having oh, needles stuck in her oh, all over the place. How, and and how old was she then? She was about nine. Yeah, and well, that, yeah, she probably was able to to think about it as a nine year old. She was, she was, and right. I, I remember doing things to try to help help her in in, in a completely mm. silly way. Looking back and saying to the, you know, I said to the doctor, "Look, here's the thing. I want you to, you know, I'm going to sit next to her, and I want you to stick some needles in my arm, also, oh my. and in my legs, so that she can see that you can survive this thing." You're and, a great dad. And, well, I I was kind of wondering. I mean, it's not this is not tooting my own horn, but I, I was. Where I'm going with this is wondering whether, you know, how you felt about this. What, you know, did you try somehow to, you know, are, are there ways we can do something to, to take away her, her suffering? I wish I knew. And I'm, you know, I just wrote a book about it, so I should have, like, ideas. But I think that when anybody goes through something like this, it's devastating. And it's, we kind of go through it alone. I mean, I remember moments of having to be in, you know, just holding her hand in the CAT scan room when I thought there was like a false positive, and I felt completely alone. I don't know, you know, some people, a lot of people talk about, you know, fighting cancer and being strong and doing certain things, right. cut, just cutting your head. And, and you know what, I, for me, it came down to, well, always being there for her, right? But being a witness was very difficult. So for me, it came down to finding things like, humor or art or family mm-hmm. to get through it. And I, but I, I kind of, I'm very aware now that everybody is different and some people need their faith and some people need food and some people need family and hours sure. and some people fight. But I, I'm very almost hesitant to say this is what worked for me because my goodness, when we, when we kind of go through this type of worry for somebody else, we're very alone. And right. And maybe that's why we reach out to people, and maybe that's why I wrote about it. I think that's what, why I wrote this Probably, book. Yeah. I wrote Falling yeah. was to think about to think about these issues. Yeah, no. But what I, I what I, I, meant, I don't, I almost don't have advice. No, no. What I, I, I wasn't actually looking for advice. I was kind of wondering whether yeah. you had a, mm. a, a a feeling of helplessness that you couldn't do anything, Completely. that there was nothing you could do, no matter nothing. what you tried. There was zero that you could do. I think that's that helplessness is, is something I keep on returning to. And I, I realized that when I've been, you know, doing readings for this book and talking about it. And as I kind of re, even reread what I wrote, what I'm kind of more aware is that there were so many things in my life that I controlled from writing children's books to playing a lot of sports. I played a lot of ultimate Frisbee right about this time. And, you know, I could control my body and I could control drawing a farm and I could control my relationships and here was something I had absolutely no control over none and it kind of floored me right 
because I wanted to. I wanted to be, you know, the father who could save her, and, and I couldn't. I really couldn't. I just could. I just kind of held her hand and smiled and tried to make our life as normal as possible. Yeah, and that really hits at the core of what fatherhood or motherhood or any kind of parenthood or caregiving for them. And you're supposed to be the the one who can do these things, and right, damn it, you can't sometimes. Yeah, right, right. I know it was, it's a terrible feeling, and I think I was also very aware that. I mean, Zoe was lucky. You know, her biology was such that she got through this, but there were other parents and other children at the hospital who were not so lucky who you know the kids died and i've always been very aware that how horrible would that feel to feel like you couldn't control that as a parent i I just can't even i can't even go there talking with elisha cooper who's the author of falling a daughter a father and a journey back we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking to elisha all right class let's hear what everyone did this weekend Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig floor for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, talking with Elisha Cooper, who's the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. Elisha, I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship. Uh, with your with your wife, as yeah. this as this went on, and I, I was kind of also as I'm reading the book, you're thinking about a lot of stuff, and I thought about for some reason the movie Lorenzo's Oil. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm, uh, no. Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon, I think, are have right, the, right. the parents of this kid who gets very sick, and a lot of the the movies about their relationship and and the kind of the, there was nothing that they could have done, but mm. you know a blaming of. Whatever it was on each other, you know that that this is your tainted blood or something. Did did you right. ever have any any kind of lashing out? Because you do talk. We'll talk about that later. But you do talk about some yeah. some in in a way irrational lashing out at people. 
Definitely. Did you did but, you do that with your wife? But never with Elise. I mean, I think, and that could just, you know, we're pretty close. We always were close, and we're still close. And I and I I I did include an essay in the book talking about us, but it was more about just kind of us aging together. And I, I mean, I don't know what would have happened had things not turned out well, but I just think in a way that it, in that essay, there wasn't so much of an arc because Elise and I were close and then we stayed close. You know, I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if it changed us. I mean, it, also she's a psychologist and a scientist and she would say, there's no way to test that, you know, there's no, there's, in other words, the sample size is too small to say what, if it would change us. But I feel that she, I mean, she's wonderful. And we kind of stood back to back on this and tried to stare it down. But again, I don't know what would have happened had Zoe not lived. Yeah. And what about your other daughter? She's younger, right? Yeah. Mia is hilarious. And she's actually kind of um, the one who would ask questions about things. But she's she's a couple years younger than Zoe. And um, she she was just kind of great, too. She would just kind of show up and jump up on the table at the at the oncology clinic. And um, one of the things that I did with this book, I hope, is kind of protect them. I don't talk too much about them. But also, you know, they were kind of great. They were strong throughout this thing. I don't, so I wasn't totally protecting them. I'm just kind of telling the truth of what they were both Mia and Zoe and yeah. and Elise. They were well, they were kind of great. I, I think I was the one who was, you know, on the face of it. I think I probably looked great too, but inside <laughs> I just was, you know, you're just talking about me. Uh, how, times I lost my temper and it happened often. And you know, it, there were times where I just was so furious, and because of this loss of control or inability to save my child, right? I felt like I was kind of knocked by this, maybe. I don't know, I want to say worse, but I just, I really felt this really just kicked me hard. You know, it seemed like there was a theme in a way, but there there was a couple of themes. There's the, the losing control kind of thing you just mentioned, but then there's also this people saying, oh, she could get hurt. And you're responding to that in, in a way. And I'm wondering what, what you were thinking about. Some Sometimes you almost said it and sometimes you did, but basically, you know, what do you mean she could get hurt falling off a couch? Do you have any idea what that is in compared to what she's already going through? Right. There was this one moment where a doctor at the clinic was saying I should take her off of a couch because it was dangerous. And I wanted to say, look, cancer is dangerous. And I think it, it speaks to I kind of got a little feral, a little like a kind of a protective bear during this time and when people would try to kind of tell me about how to parent her in maybe other ways I just would kind of lash out and I also would lash out because I I felt like okay here's this serious thing cancer you know her getting a, a, a little scraped knee here and there is not that important so I would see kind of like the small worries that well all parents have and maybe they're okay but I would say come on you know there are bigger worries than that and I kind of wanted my girls to be strong and seize the world. And certainly in those moments, I didn't want to be told what to do. But that may have been because I was, again, in this kind of space where everything made me upset, yeah. you know. And so that could have just been both me wanting the girls to take risks, but also just me being really kind of overly sensitive. And that was something I had to kind of 
write my way out of, I think. Do you think that you were a little lax with the girls in a way to kind of compensate for feelings of, boy, I don't know how long we'll have her in our lives and let her do whatever she wants to do? <laughs> I think I've always been that way as a parent. Um, so no, no, I think I was, I think I was lax just because I kind of, I grew up on a farm and I always wanted them to be climbing trees and doing kind of dangerous stuff. And I kind of, I, I uh, no, I think that was just me. And actually, the, one of the kind of the weird things that I, I often kind of played with when in writing this is like, how much was this the cancer or how much of this was like me being just an angry New Yorker or was this being me being a permissive father or was this me worrying about cancer? And so it, it's kind of like the, it was hard to tease those things apart. Which was it? A little combination of both, probably. I don't know. And did your younger daughter at some point, this has gone on for quite a while now, or had, at least it started when she was five, and so your daughter's, I guess, about 14 or something. Yeah, she's, her 14th birthday is tomorrow. Oh, congratulations. So, yeah. so Mia is the younger one. Did she yes. at, at any point in there start thinking, I wish people would pay attention to me like they're paying attention to Zoe? <laughs> I think so, but you know, I, the kind of the dynamic that's now in the family is that Mia is this incredible dancer, and she's in the Nutcracker here in New York at the you know the main Nutcracker, and she is in other shows at New York City Ballet, and so she gets a lot of attention <laughs> by being a ballet dancer, and Zoe's like, oh come on, too much ballet. So they each kind of get their own attention, Zoe through running and Mia through dancing, and I think they actually they're they're competitive with each other in that kind of healthy sisterly way where they sometimes can't stand each other and it's often about things like ballet or or running and but I think they're I think they're okay with it in other words I think Mia is okay with Zoe getting attention <laughs> and and the other way around apparently exactly exactly yeah. so what did you learn from all this oh my goodness I I wish I could come up with one soundbite, and in some ways, I think I wrote this book to kind of figure that out. And and again, one of the things I'm hesitant about is like I don't know if I could say here's this one thing I learned because I think that what I learned is different from what other people learned. And I realize that when you kind of see your child in trouble like this and go through it, everybody's path is different, and I'm very kind of aware of that. But I would say what I learned was that there were certain things that I could do to kind of get myself out of it. Like, I, I think the, there's that great line in the Hamilton, which my girls love right now, where he talks about he wrote his way out. And I felt that by using words and writing these essays, I was able to think about why these things upset me or why they made me scared or thinking about risk or thinking about again, humor, which, you know, I, I kept on in these years doing all these kind of crazy, silly things. Why was I doing that? I think sometimes we laugh when we're scared, right? Yeah. And so if I, there's something I learned, I don't know, not one thing, but again, it was things like how does humor save us or how mm -hmm. does art save us or how does family or your wife or husband or anything. There, and anybody, there are things that save all of us, and maybe that's what I've learned and that you can, people can find those. And then you can initially be really upset because it's this is upsetting. This is upsetting stuff Absolutely. to have yeah. to have your and it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be upset. And then you get through it. I think that's it. Is that you know? And this was like years of being upset and then years of figuring that out. Do you still think about it? 
I worry that I, there's going to be something will pop up. I mean, it's been obviously quite a few years since she's been no, cancer free. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she doesn't she doesn't even go back to the doctor. You know, she doesn't go back for tests. It was five years of tests and now she doesn't even go back. I don't think her, her you know, her chances of getting cancer again are back to close to what the regular population is. I I worry about her less. I worry about about her always, like any father. You know, I I worry that she'll, you know, break a leg. But that's that would be okay if she breaks a leg. That's fine. It's one of the things I write about. You know, in other words, there there are breaks that our children have, and they'll be okay. But I think this kind of the real deep worry about cancer has. Uh, largely faded, but that might be just because I'm old and forgetful. <laughs> Elisha Cooper, who is not at all old and forgetful, is the author of Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I walk and you drive. So let's make a deal. I'll watch for you and cross the street safely. You watch for me and stop. Think of the impact we can make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. I want to get to today's Mr. Dad question right away because it is an incredibly important topic. Dear Mr. Dad, this may sound dramatic, but I'm hoping you can help save my mom's life. She's constantly on her phone, talking or texting while she's driving. I'm only 13, and I've tried telling her to stop, but she says she has it under control and says I should be quiet. She's cut out some of your columns and stuck them on our refrigerator, so I know she respects your opinion. I can't get through to her, though. Will you help? Unfortunately, your mom is far from alone in using her phone while she's behind the wheel. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that at any given moment, 9% of all drivers are either on a call or texting. That may not sound like much until you consider that distracted driving, which most often involves a cell phone, causes nearly 1.3 million car crashes, killing close to 5,000 Americans and injuring more than 400,000 every year. That makes distracted driving nearly as dangerous as alcohol and speeding. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's the CDC, there are three types of distraction. Visual, which is taking your eyes off the road. Manual, which is taking your hands off the wheel. And cognitive, which is taking your mind off your driving. Let's start with texting, since it involves all three. Although we tend to think of texting as a teen thing, 41% of teens say they've seen a parent read or send a text or email, according to a recent study by AAA. In that same study, 36.1% of drivers admit that they've read a text or email within the past 30 days, and 27.1% say they've typed one. What's worse, 84.4% of drivers believe that texting or emailing while driving is completely unacceptable. And they're right. 
According to the NHTSA, someone who's texting while driving is 23 times more likely to crash than someone who's not. Because texting and driving is clearly a danger, 46 states have outlawed it. But as strange as it sounds, texting behind the wheel is nowhere near as big a problem as making calls while driving. Although if you think about it, it makes sense. Phone calls take a lot longer than texts. So of those 1.3 million crashes, only 160,000 involve texting, while 1.1 million involve talking on the phone. 14 states have outlawed talking on handheld devices while driving. That gives the very false impression that hands-free calls are safer. While it's true that they eliminate two of the risk factors, taking your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road, the whole taking your mind off your driving thing is still incredibly dangerous. Drivers using cell phones, whether handheld or hands-free, are four times more likely than other drivers to get into a serious crash. How's that possible? Well, the University of Utah neuroscientist David Strayer found that drivers using cell phones, again, handheld or hands-free, experience what he called inattention blindness, meaning that they're so distracted and their reaction times are slowed down so much that they look at, but don't actually see, half the information in their driving environment. As a result, they miss exits, run red lights and stop signs, and when they finally do notice something, it's often too late to brake or steer away. If your mom needs any more convincing on the science behind all of this, buy her a copy of Matt Richtel's excellent book, A Deadly Wandering. Hopefully, she'll live long enough to read it. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.